Think of something that you really dislike. For me, earlier this week, it was River Rock. For the last month or so, there's been a pile of River Rock covering half our driveway sitting in front of the one side of the garage. Why is it sitting there? Well, the popularity of River Rock for landscaping in the last 30 or 40 years meant that there's a ton of it kind of all around our house. And because we didn't want in our, in, it, in our landscaping, there was no place for it where it had been, and so now it was sitting on a pile in the driveway. You might think, well, the solution is for you to tell me about the wonderful qualities of River Rock. It's nice and smooth. When it's first installed, it's so neat and tidy. But here's the problem. My mind is already made up. I've seen how when we went to Indiana, we tried to dig up a red bud because we wanted to bring it home, and you can't dig a tree out of it or a weed out of it once the root gets down in there because the rock is so compacted. And then dirt and grass clippings and weed seeds and all those things blow in, and, and then you can't really do a whole lot with it either, and it doesn't look so nice anymore. It makes this sort of never-ending cycle of maintenance. The more that you tell me, the less I'm interested. And if you have it around your house and it's worked great for you, fine, but I'm trying to use it to illustrate this. There's parallels to what we see in Mark 1. Jesus faces increasing opposition from the religious leaders with each successive chapter of Mark's gospel. Much of that opposition results from Jesus' growing popularity among the people. The crowds follow him everywhere. They quickly forget the authority of his preaching and his teaching. They seek constantly for the astonishing power of his miracles. In response, the religious leaders see Jesus as a threat to their power and authority. They, to their power, and they question his authority. We see that more in Mark 2 and 3. They get so angry that they decide to kill him. The more they hear the people praise Jesus, the more they oppose him, their minds are made up. So what started as a dislike, the more the popularity grew, the more that they were opposed to it. When I was uh, looking up some things about the end of Mark 1, I came across a sermon by MacArthur. And in that sermon, he points out that Jesus' opportunity to minister around the Sea of Galilee and the towns there was greatly constrained on the one side by the opposition of the religious leaders and on the other, and sometimes even his own family, and on the other side by the popularity of the crowd. Uh, And we see this progression in Mark 1. The more that the people chase after him, the less opportunity he has to go into a town without being mobbed. And the more that the people chase after him and, and surround him and are excited about him, the more the religious leaders resent him. And those things eventually, at least from a human perspective, leave no place for his ministry in Galilee. After the brief introduction that we saw last week at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, Mark gives us a number of snapshots of Jesus' ministry. Each of these scenes takes place around the Sea of Galilee, seeming over the course of just a few days. And for each of these, we should notice the setting, what Jesus does or says, and the responses of the people. As we see the movement from verse 16 down through verse 45, I think the passage is calling us to this. Follow Jesus, don't try to make him popular. Follow Jesus, don't try to make him popular. There's a time and a place for Jesus to be revealed, But it was not at the beginning of his ministry. We're going to see how this comes to a head at the end of chapter 1. Sometimes we think that the worst fate is obscurity. Right? 
But I think as we go through these verses, these sections, we're going to see that popularity can be just as much of a detriment as not having your name known. And in the end, it wasn't what Jesus was looking for after all. So we see the first scene, verses 16 through 20. At the sea, Jesus calls men from fishing to following him. He finds Simon and Andrew. They're down by the sea. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, that seems like a strange phrase to say. We're good at catching fish. We're not sure how to catch people. We're not even sure what that looks like. And yet, that's what he says. What in that did they understand Jesus to be saying? I will help show you how to make followers of me, even as I'm calling you to be followers of me. What's their response? They leave their nets immediately. He goes to James, son of Zebedee, Zebedee, and John, son of Zebedee. They're in the boat mending the nets. Jesus says, come follow me. What do they do? They leave the servants. They leave their father. They leave their livelihood. They go. They follow after him. This scene, we see Jesus calling the men that he chose as his disciples. We see them responding immediately, leaving work and family to follow him. Was this the response that Jesus was looking for? I think as we continue through the book of Mark, we'll see that it was. But what's the next scene? The synagogue in Capernaum. So if he's coming around the Sea of Galilee, perhaps on the northern side by the seashore, then he comes to a city, Capernaum. He goes into the synagogue. At the synagogue, secondly, Jesus teaches with authority and casts out a demon, verses 21 through 28. Jesus starts by teaching in the synagogue with authority. What's the response of the people? It's amazement. Why? He's declaring God's word clearly without back and forth like the scribes tended to have. Why? Because he's the source of authority for the words. You probably, you know, for different ones of us, it's been different lengths of time, and some of you may not have gotten there yet, but in English class around high school, junior high, you start reading things by various authors, you discuss what did the author mean, and, and you think about that. And one person would say, well, this is what the author meant. And the other person will say, no, well, this is what the author meant. Why is there that back and forth? Because usually the person that wrote the thing's dead, and nobody is able to ask, what did you actually mean by this? And so what tends to happen is we bring our own ideas to it, and we say, well, you know, I was mistreated as a child, so this is about mistreatment. Or I've enjoyed a life of ease, so this is about how to get rich. And we just come with all these ideas to whatever the poem or the piece of literature is, and we sort of make it about us instead of about what it says. And that's what the scribes tended to do. Rabbi so-and-so would say, well, this and this and this and this means that this is what this passage says. And the other rabbi would say, no, well, actually, this and this and this. And so much of it had become about their tradition instead of about God's word. And Jesus comes, and he is the word of God. And so he knows exactly what it means, because it's the representation of God's character revealing who he is to the people. And now the one who's come, who is very God himself, revealing God to the people in an even clearer way than the law could have, but he uses the law to do it, and the people are amazed. He's not tentative. He's not saying it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. He's like, it's this. Listen to me. They're amazed. Jesus proves his authority by casting out the demon. 
He's in the middle there teaching, proclaiming God's word in the synagogue, the place of teaching, the place of studying the law. A man is there who has an unclean spirit. And he says something that's true. The demon in him says something that's true. Have you come to destroy us? You're the Holy One of God. If the demon is saying something that's true, why wouldn't Jesus say, yes, I am? Why is the demon doing this? The demon's trying to stir up trouble. The demon is trying to distract from Jesus showing he is the word by teaching the word with authority. It's not the demon's job to testify who Jesus is. And it is done in such a way to be a distraction from Jesus testifying about himself. And we think we see a parallel to there's a uh, a little girl who's demon-possessed when Paul goes into one of the cities on one of his missionary journeys, and she's crying out and she's saying, Paul's telling you about Jesus. Everything he says is true. And it's hard for us to unravel that passage because it seems like Paul is annoyed, but there's also, I think, a bit of righteous anger and our motives are not always clear. But he casts the demon out too because the little girl is becoming a distraction. Here, Jesus casts out the demon both to deliver the man and because the demon is a distraction to the ministry that he's trying to do. It says, Jesus rebuked him, rebuked the demon, be quiet and come out of him. And the demon is unwilling. He throws him into convulsions. And this reveals uh, the intent of demons, which is to harm and do evil to those whom they possess. Uh, There are books, movies, comics, whatever in our society that games that try to make it sound like demon possession is intriguing or helpful in some way. But the reality is, um, it's not. And to say it even more emphatically, whatever small benefit it would appear that the demon is giving the person who's possessed, we see far more examples, particularly in the Gospels, of a demon who takes a little boy and tries to throw him in the fire and the water to burn him, to drown him, to destroy him. You say, well, why would the demon do that? Because the demon delights in doing evil, because Satan delights in doing evil, and he's following after Satan as the greatest of the demons. So this is not an advantageous thing. And the fact that a demon speaks the word of God, or something that lines up with the word of God, should concern us. And here's why. Just because someone says something that's true doesn't mean that they follow God. And that's really important because in connection with what salvation means, sometimes we think it means I speak things that are true about Jesus. And there's got to be more to it than just I know some facts and I can rattle them off because if the demons, as James says in another place, know who God is and fear and tremble before him but are unwilling to acknowledge his authority which is an issue that rises up in the next section. Who has authority? Do we submit to that authority and recognize that authority or do we reject it, the authority of Jesus? I can say, here's all these facts that are true about Jesus and even at some level believe those facts to be true, but if I don't acknowledge the authority of Jesus and submit to him, I have no relationship with him. The demon said something that was true and the demon was forced to obey, but the demon did not have a relationship with Jesus in the way that God calls us to. And so I think that's a sobering thing because, again, 
for those of us who've been in church for any length of time, for some that's more, for some that's less, it's really easy to fall in this idea that if I know the right facts about God, that means I'm right with God. And I'm walking with God. Now, is there some minimum of facts we need to know about God to walk with God? Yes. If you don't even know that there is a God, how can you possibly follow him? If you don't even know what he calls his people to do, how can you obey him? But knowing those things does not guarantee you a relationship with God. The demon cries out with a loud voice and came out. What's the response of the people? Again, amazement. He told the demon to leave and it did. Why is this amazing to them? Well, <clears throat> there were Jewish exorcists. How do we know this? Because in the book of Acts, we see it. I think it's in Acts 19. Uh, Paul is casting out demons and there are seven sons of a Jewish priest who say, we're going to go cast out a demon. They show up to the house of a man who's demon-possessed. They say, in the name of Paul's Jesus, we adjure you to leave this man alone. The demon's like, hey, I know Paul, I know Jesus. You guys I don't recognize and you don't even believe in the words that you're saying. And so he has such power that he basically tears the clothes off these seven sons of the priest, sends them naked and bleeding out in the street, and great fear comes upon the crowds. So there are people who tried to cast out demons, maybe with varying degrees of success, but Jesus just speaks and it goes. And Jesus doesn't have to do any sort of special ritual. There's a pagan view of exorcism and there is a biblical view of exorcism. And the pagan view is, follow the syntax, follow the formula, get the chant right, get the sequence right, and it will happen. And that's quite honestly what we see, for example, with the worshipers of Baal dancing around their altar to Baal. If we can get his attention and provoke him and do things in the right way, he has to do what we want. God is not bound to do what we want if we get the formula right. Out of his mercy and his grace, he freely gives good gifts to his people and hears and acknowledges their prayer, but not because we've boxed him in a corner and said, okay, you got to do this for me. And he's like the genie in the bottle. Well, I guess I have to. God is a God who in and of his own purpose and his own authority does certain things. And so when Jesus comes and just speaks, they see the power of God that spoke the world into existence and the power of God that led them through the wilderness. They see the power of God truly revealed. Not like the exorcist who sometimes could deliver and sometimes couldn't. Not like the scribes who sometimes could make up their minds and sometimes couldn't. Here is teaching with authority backed up by a sign and wonder with authority. They argue what it means. What is this? The news spreads everywhere throughout Galilee. Both the disciples and the crowds follow Jesus. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that their following is not the same. Jesus goes to those who will be his disciples and he says, hey, come follow me. He doesn't do a miracle, necessarily. He doesn't. Now, in some of the Gospels, we see uh, the thing with the fish and the nets. But here, Mark says, there's no sign that's indicated alongside this, right? And even if there is a sign for some of the fishermen, when he goes and he calls Levi or Matthew, the tax collector in uh, chapter 2 or 3, um, 
and all the rest of them. There's no record anyway of him doing a miracle. And then they say, okay, yes, we're going to follow you. Or even if there is a miracle at the outset and they follow him, they're not the ones saying, give us more miracles necessarily. But what do we see with the crowds? The crowds are amazed and they want to continue to be amazed. There is a difference in motivation and disposition for someone who follows another person for the sake of that person versus for the sake of what that person will do for you. It took him a long road to get there, but Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. He recognizes who Jesus is. A lot of missteps along the way, a lot of foolish statements, a lot of rash actions, but he recognizes Jesus is the Son of God. The crowds, by and large, fail to ever do that. All they're interested in is, will he deliver us from the Romans? Will he do miracles? Will he provide something that we want? We see in the next scene that Jesus doesn't just have power over demons, but also over all the consequences of sin in the world. It opens at the house of Peter's mother-in-law. At Simon's house, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Verses 29 through 31. The disciples accompany Jesus out of the synagogue. Immediately after the synagogue, they go to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. What does Jesus do? He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. The fever left her and she waited on them. Why is that last little phrase in there? Because I think otherwise it would be easy for us, for us to say, well, you know, she was kind of sick and then he encouraged her and she's like, you know what, I'm not too bad, I can do it. But if she is forced to be in bed with a fever and then she feels well enough to go about the normal things of a house, that is actually a healing, a restoration to health. It's not this gradual process where you feel sick and then the next day you can do a little bit and the next day you can do a little bit more and the day after that you can do a little bit more than that. This was, she's sick, flat on her back in bed, she's up, she can do the normal things around the house. Not only did Jesus care about this random man at the synagogue, but he shows care for the family of his disciples and delivers Peter's mother-in-law from sickness. She's restored back to full health. And then we see the last few scenes in this passage. Throughout Galilee, Jesus preaches and shows his power. Verses 32 through 45. What's the response of the people? He calls his disciples... They go into the synagogue. The people hear Jesus teaching and see him cast out the demon. They probably hear the news of Simon's mother-in-law being healed. It says the people bring the sick and demon-possessed to Jesus. The crowds gather at Simon's house to gather to get something from Jesus. Why do I say at Simon's house? Because it says in verse 33, the whole city had gathered at the door. And it could have been the door of another place, but in context, it's probably the door of Simon's house. So they said, all right, here's a place where someone is healed. Let's bring everybody here to be healed. And Jesus does for a time. He heals many ill with various diseases and he casts out the demons, but he doesn't permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. 
So that parallels verse 24. We have it here in verse 34. We're going to see it again in verses 43 and 44, that Jesus has this pattern at the outset of his ministry. Yes, I've delivered you, but the emphasis is not go spread the news about me. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So the people bring the sick and demon-possessed to Jesus, and then Jesus leaves the crowds to be alone with God in verses 35 through 39. In the early morning, while it's still dark, he gets up, he leaves the house, goes to a secluded place and was praying there. Even there, Simon finds him and says, everyone is looking for you. This verse was one that when I was at a Christian camp, he said, all right, if you really want to follow Jesus, you've got to get up, you've got to go away by yourself, and you've got to pray, and if you don't do that, like they try to make it like this was the pattern that has to happen every day. And we talked on Wednesday night about the fact that there are days when different things come up. Sometimes you've got to be out of the house right first thing in the morning. You don't always have opportunity to follow a specific pattern. So it's not, I do this every day, and if I don't do it a particular day, the rest of the day is going to be a wreck. Now, on the other hand, and to correct the other extreme, there are people who say, I never need to do this. And if Jesus, who is God, communes with God the Father, then we probably need to be doing that too. Jesus here places priority on his relationship with God the Father over and above continued healing of all the people who had needs. And there, there's maybe a degree to which we would struggle with that and say, but all these people you could help, why aren't you helping them? Why are you going off by yourself? And it seems that the disciples had a little bit of a sense of that because he's off for a while and Simon's like, hey, everybody's looking for you. What are you doing out here? It's not the exact words, but I think that's the sense that we get from what he's asking. Everybody's looking for you. And notice Jesus' response. We would think that Jesus' response would be, all right, I'm going to go back to your house, Simon. We're going to do some more miracles all day, and that's going to be the focus of what happens. But what does he say? Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. What did Jesus come to do? Sometimes we think that Jesus came to heal the sick and demon-possessed. And that's a lot of what he did. But what he came to do was to reveal God the Father. And the way that he did that was proclaiming who God is to the people. And yes, the miracles were important. But in so many cases, the miracles became a distraction and were the foundation of the popularity that led the people to chase after him and to quickly turn on him when they didn't get what they wanted. The main core of what Jesus came to do was to seek and to save that which was lost, which we'll see later in the book. And he did that by proclaiming God's word to them. And his goal was for them to follow him, not because of the miracles, though they vindicated his authority and showed he was from God, but to follow him because he is the word of God, the son of man, God himself come down to reveal himself to man. And so if that was the goal and the focus, he doesn't have to go back to Simon's house and heal more people in that town all day long. His goal was to go to another place and another place and another place and talk to them about who God was and reveal God to them. And he does that, verse 39. All throughout Galilee, he goes into their synagogues preaching and casting out the demons. Now, both happen, right? But 
one of those is the one that he said he came to do, and the other is just something that accompanies what he said he came to do. And here's why that's important, I think, as we think about it from the rest of Scripture. As long as there's sin in the world, what will there also be? Sickness and demon possession. Jesus needed to deal with the sin. He needed to deal with the fact that people didn't have a relationship with God. He needed to come in a way that connected them to God, pointed them to himself, and then die to deal with their sin. Because Jesus was only going to be there for a short space. And so if the hope of the people of Israel was pinned on the three, three and a half years that Jesus is going around doing his ministry, their hopes were going to be disappointed. Because when he's not there anymore, and after a short window in which the apostles are going and spreading the gospel, casting out demons and healing the sick at the very least goes on the back burner, if not completely ceases for a time. Now we see glimpses of it again in the book of Revelation, which I think points out to us that there are periods or peaks of intense deliverance that God does. And since it also is accompanies moments of apostasy in the history of God's people and moments of God's word coming to new groups of people, I think we would expect to see healing and casting out of demons as the gospel goes to new places and in major turning points in the history of God's work in the world. And so I don't think we should entirely disbelieve stories of missionaries or people in other places where those things take place. That being said, if our focus becomes on the sign, the wonder, the miracle, the remarkable thing, instead of the clear teaching of God's word, the exact same thing is happening that happened here. So here's what I'm saying. If somebody said, I had a dream, I saw this person miraculously healed, I don't think it's super profitable to argue with that person about that thing and say, no, that didn't happen. I think we're absolutely called to say, and so what is your relationship with God? What is your relationship to the things that he's revealed about himself in the Bible? Because too often, like the crowds, we're chasing after something other than a relationship with God. But... I think the thing that a lot of us might struggle with is we're so materialistic because we've been influenced by our society to say, well, none of that could possibly be true. We know better than that. Disease is caused by germs. Demon possession is caused by mental illness or whatever else the explanation society has. There is no spiritual component because there's no such thing as a spiritual world. The Bible paints a very different picture. We can talk more about that in the discussion time if any of that is unclear. The point that I'm trying to make is the focus of Jesus' ministry was to go and preach the gospel like he did in verse 16. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Are you going to believe? Are you going to be a part of the kingdom? Are you going to follow after me? The final scene, verses 30 or 40 through 45 a leper pleads for Jesus to make him clean. He comes to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, lots of background, but let me just summarize it briefly of why this is significant. Lepers were not supposed to come near people who were not lepers. There's treatments today for leprosy. There are ways to avoid getting leprosy. Um, 
when we were down visiting family, uh, I had forgotten this, but apparently certain animals carry leprosy, like armadillos. And so not touching them would be one way to not get leprosy. Um, and then there's medications that help treat it. But in their day, this was something that gradually got worse and worse. So what's leprosy? It's a disorder of the pain receptors that leads to all sorts of injury to your skin and causes essentially over the long run decay. Not always just because of the progression of the disease, but sometimes due to the fact that you can't feel anything, you just go to a point where you just end up like destroying your body, right? You don't know that the fire is hot, so you burn your hand and you can't tell. Um, something gets infected and you don't know, so you end up getting gangrene and open sores on yourself. And, and over time, this would progress worse and worse and worse. And so the solution according to the law, was to isolate the people that experienced this. And so lepers were the outcast of society. They weren't supposed to come near people who are clean. But this man is so desperate for help, he comes to Jesus and pleads with him, will you make me clean? He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus shows compassion, like we saw at the end of Micah 7 that we looked at in the Sunday school hour. God is a God of compassion and mercy even when we don't deserve it. So why this leper versus any other leper? Why this moment versus any other moment in God's plan? This man comes. Jesus has compassion. He says, I'm willing. Be clean. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now the emphasis on being clean and being cleansed is tied in with the concern of the law that the issue is not so much, although this was a huge part of it, the fact that it isolated you from almost every other human being. The issue is it barred you from access to God. You couldn't go into the temple because you were unclean. You couldn't gather to worship with God's people because you were unclean. Some types of uncleanness, you waited a period of time, you offered certain sacrifices, and then you were clean again, and you could participate in all these things. With this, you couldn't. And so as difficult and as heartbreaking as the isolation from family and friends and wandering in the wilderness as a result of all of that, was the lack of access to God was the even bigger issue. And so there's an emphasis here on cleansing. Jesus' response is also fascinating. He gives him two directions. One thing kind of had two parts. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. He said, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We say, all right, What's the significance of this? Jesus knows the hearts of the priests and the religious leaders. If there's a man who has been a leper and his family or friends, if he still had them, accompany him and say, yes, we can attest to the fact that he was a leper, but as you can see, he is cleansed. There is an undeniable miracle. Think about what happens in uh, the book of Acts, either chapter 3 or 4. There is a lame man Peter and John heal him by God's power. What's the response of the religious leaders? An undeniable miracle has taken place. We can't question that it happened. We're just going to try to spin it to our advantage. But they can't deny the miracle. Jesus says, I want you to go so there's an undeniable miracle so that they have no basis for rejecting my authority. What does the man do? 
he goes and starts spreading the news. Hey, check out what happened. This is amazing. This is wonderful. We're like, well, shouldn't he want to tell everybody what has happened? He's excited. This is amazing. This is wonderful. He can be connected with all these people. It's not what Jesus told him to do. The man disobeyed and spread the news. What's the result? To such an extent, the news spread that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. MacArthur's sermon title was, Jesus Trades Place with a Leper. Jesus is in the city, ministering. The leper is outside. The leper comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him. And because of the leper's actions, Jesus has to go out in the wilderness. So, Jesus' ministry is, verse 13 of chapter 1, in the wilderness being tempted, out of the wilderness to minister in the cities, because of the disobedience of the leper, back out in the wilderness, not having the same opportunity to preach the gospel in the place where he wanted to preach the gospel. And we say, well, God's sovereign. He could have worked in a different way. Absolutely. But that doesn't deny the ongoing effect of specific actions. God could have overruled this, but it seems like he didn't. Do you see the difference? It's not that it constrained him because God couldn't do anything about it. It's God didn't do anything about it, and Jesus' ministry in Galilee takes a different turn. In these scenes from Galilee, we see, I think, the disciples and perhaps Peter's mother-in-law having a right response to Jesus. The disciples, at least at first, seem to follow him for himself. And we're going to see later their motives are imperfect. This ebbs and flows throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. But the crowds follow Jesus to get something from him. Miracles and wonders. They spread news. They increase his popularity, while at the same time mostly ignoring his message. What can we learn from their response and from Jesus' response to them? Was it wrong of them to be excited, either for the leper or for the crowds, when they see these acts of healing and deliverance and all these? Was it wrong for them to be excited? No, but I think they were excited for the wrong reasons. They're excited because they say, hey, so-and-so got better. What about this person? Maybe he can get better. Maybe she can get better. Maybe all of us can get better. This is wonderful. That's not the point of why Jesus came. Was it selfish for Jesus to avoid the crowds? No, to the extent that they were focused on his power to amaze them instead of his power and authority in teaching, they were not ready for his presence among them. How might we act like those people today? Let's give you one illustration. How do you tell people about God? Do you say Jesus will give you power over your oppressors? No, because that's not really our, our situation. We tend not to present the gospel in that way. Do you say Jesus will make you rich? We're like, no, that's the false way of presenting the gospel. We would never say that. But we all have this temptation, I think, to tone down truths about God when we talk to people about him. We're really ready to say God loves you. We're not always so ready to say God is angry with your sin. And there's perhaps ways that people have done this in not the best way in the past, but I don't mean singling out one sin above all the others, right? It's not as though we go around and we say lying is the one sin, and so we go find all the liars. God is angry with your sin. You are going to hell. You need to repent. Or whatever other sin we pick to be the sin that we're going to like talk to people about. What we should be doing is being honest with people and saying, God shows mercy to all at the moment so that we're not condemned 
and consumed, but a day is coming for Jesus to judge the world. Are you ready? The only reason I'm ready is because of the work Jesus has done in my life. So it's not I'm better than you and I'm ready, you're not because me. It's I have received God's mercy, you need to receive God's, receive God's mercy. I'm pleading with you to do that because there's a day of judgment coming. And if I don't tell you there's a day of judgment coming and you're not ready to receive God's mercy, then that is on me. We tend not to be that clear with people. And I'll be honest, I've had conversations this week where I struggled to be that clear with people because in the back of our minds, we feel like God has an image problem. God of the Old Testament, wrath, fire, brimstone, judgment. Eh, that's not going to work in a modern society. Let's tone it down. Jesus loves you. He wants to be your buddy. God's the man upstairs. That was, you know, 40 years ago. More recently, it's, let's just, you know, sort of present the gospel as God wants everything in your life to work out. God wants you to be happy. Who wouldn't want a God that wants you to be happy? You want God to, that wants you to be happy, right? Why don't you follow after him? So we leave out all the parts about if we follow God, things may get dramatically harder. That in this life, you will have persecution and we just want to say the stuff that's like, hey, you get out of the jail free card. You're not going to go to hell. Later, maybe we'll tell you you got to do certain things to obey and follow him. But we don't say that up front. That is misrepresenting God in the same way that the crowds followed after him for the wrong reason and the leper promoted the wrong thing about Jesus. He can fix your sickness. What he should have said is, he's the Messiah. How do we know he's the Messiah? Because of this thing that he did, because of the words that he said, in the context of the things that God had established for the priests and the law to do, all those things. But nobody was doing that. And that doesn't mean the priest had an excuse, but it gave them more of an excuse because this man had the wrong response to Jesus. Sometimes we feel like if God was more popular, more people would follow him. The more we try to make Jesus popular, especially by changing his message about himself, the more that we make sinful people resent God. Because they realize at the end of the day, it's not that there's one thing about God we don't like, so if we just tone down that one thing, everything will be okay. They don't like anything about God because we didn't either. We didn't want anything of God. It's not we only want part of God, it's that we want none of God. Or we might be successful, but we make sinful people want God for the wrong reasons. If I say, if you follow Jesus, he'll make your life better, how long are you going to follow Jesus? until he stops making your life better. Jesus doesn't want to be popular. He wants you to obey him. He wants disciples, not admirers. Jesus doesn't want you to follow like the crowds that were eager for a light show. He wants you to live with and for him day in and day out like the disciples who left fishing and family and familiarity to see who he really was and share those truths with the world. Follow Jesus don't try to make him popular. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. We pray that you would help us to see what it is that your goals for our ministry on your behalf are, and that we would fulfill those well by your grace. It wouldn't be about us, and it wouldn't be about a false picture of you, but it would only be about you and calling one another to really follow about who you are day by day. We pray that you give us grace to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.